1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, a member FDIC. Tess. Drive, Tess. Just drive. Hands on the wheel, holding on. Don't stop. Don't think. Don't cry. Drive. Midnight on the dashboard clock. High beams cut what can't be seen. Trees rake branches past in periphery. Blink against what's blurred. Hold on, hold everything together. God, there's blood all over. Don't look at it, don't look at your dress. It's dirty, wet, ripped to rags. Your heels, they're gone, where are they? Handbag, iPhone, missing, lost. You can't go back, can't ever go back. There's a light through the trees to the right of the road. A house set back in the woods. Pickup parked in the front drive. Living room curtains drawn but a lamp's on. The glow from the TV. Aquamarine. Someone home. Awake. Help. Scream, help me. Scream it. Drive, you haven't gone far enough yet. You don't know how far is far enough, so don't slow down. Don't pull over. Don't go for help. That sound you're making? Stop it. That shivering, teeth chattering? Make it stop. Tonight will never be over. He said stupid girl before it happened. I was in the trees, walking to my car. I didn't take the well-lit path to the parking lot. I wanted to feel the last of the twilight coming down through the tops of the pines like a long-held breath exhaled. Behind me, the fundraiser gala was just transitioning to full-on party in that impossibly immense mansion and its grounds. I walked, but my heels were an obstacle. Yes, that's what happened. I slipped them off and carried them in one hand like I've seen women do in movies, heels dangling from the fingertips at an angle like an empty glass of champagne. I was cold in the low-cut, too-short, black evening dress I was wearing, but I didn't mind. The cold was what I needed, a hit of clear-headedness that delivered me back to myself after all the troubling, unsettling things that had happened earlier. My feet pressed down on pine needles, twisted twigs, little rocks, all sharp, painful. I went slowly, moving from tree to tree, resting my weight on one trunk, then hobbling lamely to the next. I was probably not okay to drive home, but I intended to sit in the car for a while and listen to music and sober up. The man was there suddenly. He was in front of me in the near dark, standing so still. I thought it was just a stunted, misshapen tree. And then his head moved slightly, and what light was left in the nightfall shivered across the circles of his glasses and died. I stumbled backward and nearly fell over, finally dropping to one knee. "'Do you need some help?' he said. His voice was loud, like a shout, and there was an eerie straining to it, a withheld surge, emotion forced out flat, I saw his hand move, taking something out of the pocket of his bomber jacket. He said, It looks like you really need me right now. I knew what was happening. I was far enough away from the mansion, out in the trees, out in the dark, that no one there would hear me if I shouted. No one would ever know what was taking place. I couldn't outrun this man. Not without shoes, not in this ridiculous tight dress. I was alone, helpless. I felt tears in my eyes. He made a strange sound, a laugh that was choked back into a breathless, swallowed sob. Here, he said in that constricted voice. Take my hand. He moved forward, and in his outstretched hand, there was a long, black-bladed hunting knife. Realm Presents... Dark Heights. Episode 1. Not stupid. I'm not. There's plenty of stupid girls around. I went to high school with several hundred I should know, and I'm not one of them. Every day of high school was an extended lesson in alienation, ending with a pop quiz in apathy that I aced every time. All right, I didn't go to university or college after high school. I didn't pursue any ambitious dreams of becoming a doctor or scientist or professor of humanities. But I had my reasons, and being stupid wasn't one of them. I left Park Heights for a year after graduating from high school. Then I came back. I got a job at the Green Machine, an organic grocery store right at the center of town on Beach Boulevard, next to Crazy's, the town's vegan diner. The owner of the green machine, Mona Wrightson, is a friend of my mother's. So it wasn't hard to ask her for work. I think it was always unsaid that I would have a job there if I wanted one. I had my own car, my mother's car, the 1995 Buick Roadmaster Estate station wagon that refused to die, no matter what we did to it over the years. I've observed more than one adolescent milestone in that car. What Mona really needed when I asked her for a job was a delivery person, since she had started offering grocery delivery service a few years before, and the demand had kept growing. So that's what I ended up doing, back in the town I grew up in, living with my mother again in our old house. I became a veggie delivery girl. It started out as depressing as you would imagine, I picked up the packages from the loading bay behind the store, chucked them into the back of the Roadmaster, got lost over and over again even though I had grown up in Park Heights and thought I knew the town as well as anyone, was late for every delivery, and every customer complained to me in ways I could never imagine or anticipate. "'These avocados aren't ripe enough except for this one, which is overripe,' or "'You always give me too much spinach, so I'm sending back all of this spinach, and I'm canceling this service.' People can be irrational, but I soon found my footing in the job. I found my way around. Park Heights is actually easy to map out. Beach Boulevard is the snaky centerline of the town. Most other streets radiate out from it. Beach starts at the Wellness Center, which is a big holistic health retreat, a walled complex right at the foot of the hills and the base of the town. Then it ascends through many lazy switchbacks, the slopes of a few hillsides, until it becomes the main drag about halfway up, climbing even more steeply after that to gain the top elevation, Summit Estates, a gated community with views south to Santa Monica, the Pacific, and east to LA. Going west from the estates, just before the hilltop where Summit Drive dead ends overlooking Topanga State Park, There's a private property set way back behind a gatehouse. It's called arson. There are letters cut into the stone gates spelling it out. Private tours go through there sometimes. It's an historic mansion, built in the 20s, I think, maybe earlier. People do live there, too. A billionaire's family. The Severins. It's a beautiful town, Park Heights. There are always famous people moving here to start a family, moving away when their marriages end. Some stars still live here. Judith Light, Mark Singer, Devin Hanlon from that weird mid-90s supernatural cop show that everyone loves now for some reason. I heard they're remaking it. I guess the place was basically overrun by free-loving artists in the 60s, and it still has a lot of that spirit. There's a tie-dye and beadwork shop on Beach Boulevard. There's no library in town, but there's a building called the Regional Arts Nexus where I took acting classes when I was little. The gas station sells acrylics in its convenience store. All over Park Heights, colorful houses sit tucked away in overgrown yards where hooped metal sculptures rust out front in the uncut grass. I got used to the few crotchety customers on my delivery route. It was quickly apparent most of my stops were with people who didn't say much of anything at all to me. There were a few exceptions and I found myself looking forward to these, my favorites. Mrs. Markova was at the top of the list, a crazy hyper-Russian lady who always offered me vodka to get me to stay a little longer and talk about sex. Not that I had much to contribute to that conversation. (laughs) The Green Machine started delivering lunches to the Wellness Center, and I talked a lot with Nazreen, who worked the reception desk. Then there was Mr. Lamont, who'd lost his wife a year ago and was quiet and kind and sad. There were Jenny and Karen, a lesbian couple who ran one of the local B&Bs. They tipped so well, I had to start refusing their money. There was Kevin Cho's mom. I don't know her name, but I went to high school with Kevin. And every now and then when I made a delivery, he was at home and we reminisced. My work days became habitual. I usually grabbed a bean breakfast burrito from Crazies next door to the green machine before my shifts and finished the day off with a jumbo smoothie to go also from crazies. Sometimes I sat in the 50s-style interior of the diner for a while, reading. I was developing a tranquility for myself, a pattern that fit the person I found myself to be, for the moment, content to quietly exist. One evening, as I drove home, turning from beach onto Palmetto Drive, I slowed down as I passed a car parked on the wrong side of the road, very high-end BMW sports coupe with both of its doors hanging wide open like the broken wings of an insect. On the grass near the car, there was a struggle going on. A fight between a man and a woman, and another man was standing there watching them, smoking a cigarette. I slowed down some more. They were young, I could see now, the two guys and the girl, my age or even younger. The guys looked like rich kids from Summit Estates. They wore designer clothes, had rock star haircuts. The girl had long, dirty blonde hair flying wild around her face. She wore too much mascara. Her lipstick was smeared. There was a secondhand look about the short, off-white summer dress she wore over fishnet tights and black ankle boots. She was a skinny, tiny thing. She looked overmatched, out of her depth. I pulled over and watched them in the rearview mirror. It was hard to tell what was going on, but I didn't like it at all. The guy kept grabbing the girl's arm and she kept yanking it free. Things were escalating. Get back in the fucking car! The guy was shouting now. Let go of me right now, Dylan! The girl spat back at him. Her voice had a rising hysteria in it. This time, as she pulled her arm out of his grasp, she tripped over her feet and fell backwards onto the grass. He stood above her, both hands clenched into fists. His friend threw down the butt of his cigarette and moved toward them. I shoved the car door open and came out. I had no idea what I was doing. I was furious. Hey, assholes, I yelled, leave her alone. Dylan and his friend turned around. The friend had shoulder length dark hair that he flipped out of his face. He reminded me of a young Christian Slater he said with exaggerated slowness as if i might be too dumb to follow how about you get back in your craptastic station wagon and just keep on driving i'm not going anywhere i said i decided that i would simply go to the girl and help her the two guys actually parted to let me pass in between them i think they were stunned that i just kept on coming I knelt down on the grass next to the girl, with my back to Dylan and his friend, acting as if they had already left the scene. The girl was watching all of this from the ground, propped up on her elbows. There was a surprisingly hard-edged look in her eyes. I offered her my hand. We stood up together and faced the two rich kids. "'I don't know what you're waiting for,' I said to them. "'It's a school night, isn't it? Don't you have homework? Chores? A bedtime snack you're missing?' Holy shit, Dylan said. What a bitch. Dylan's friend flipped his hair back again. He probably thought the gesture was hot. I saw there was actually a more or less, given the circumstances, good-natured smirk on his face. He put a hand on Dylan's shoulder. It started out boring, you know, for me, and now I'm thinking I'd rather be anywhere else but here right now. Shut up, Zack, Dylan said. I realized he hadn't made eye contact with me once. He'd been staring at the girl the whole time. His intensity was unnerving. All at once, I felt uncertain about the outcome of what I'd gotten into. Then I realized someone else was watching us all. Dylan's friend, Zack, saw my eyes move past them and focus on what I saw across the street. He turned around, and so did Dylan. When I was in high school, there was a guy in my class from Park Heights. Most kids from here go to Palisades Charter High in LA, where they call us Parkies, who one day stopped showing up altogether. No one knew why. His name was Charlie Mill. Lots of rumors circulated, but I knew none of them were true. Admittedly, I forgot about Charlie. (laughs) Especially since I had spent a year in LA after graduating, and everything about high school seemed to have already receded into a distant past, on the other side of a divide of life experience. When I came back to live in Park Heights, I realized something weird had been going on in town. There was a tall, spare young man always dressed in the same jeans and hoodie and Converse sneakers. He rode a little BMX all over town all day long, and over his head, He always wore a shiny blue Mexican wrestler mask that no one had seen him take off, ever. Apparently, he never spoke a word to anyone, and sometimes he stood on the street for hours watching cars go by. I mentioned this once to Kevin Cho, who looked at me strangely and said to me, well, that's Charlie Mill. Didn't you know that was Charlie Mill? The two rich kids were looking behind them across the street at Charlie who was standing there, watching us with no expression at all or movement of his face within the white-lined nose, mouth, and eye holes of the bright blue luchador mask. I shook my head. This was not going how I thought it would. Zack seemed to be thinking the same thing. That is definitely our cue, he said, to get the hell out of here before this gets any weirder. He moved back toward their car. Dylan, you coming? You could see the gears spinning in the minuscule scope of Dylan's narrow mind. He knew that leaving the situation was some kind of defeat, but he wasn't sure if sticking around was worth the trouble I was causing. Finally, his shoulders hunched up, and he spat into the grass between us. He said, This isn't over, Lina. Don't even dream it's over. That was it. As Dylan and his friends sped away in their sports car, the girl, Lina, turned to me and said, What a cheesy exit line. I watched their car turn on beach and accelerate uphill. Then I looked across the street. Charlie had disappeared too. That guy, Dylan, he's trouble for you, I finally said to Lina. I can handle it, she shrugged. But you... You're kind of out of nowhere, aren't you? She was smiling widely at me. It was somehow disturbing. There was no trace in her of fear or embarrassment, nor did she seem thankful to me for stepping in. She looked like she was having a great time. Her sideways smile showed teeth that were slightly uneven. You sure you're okay? I said. I was beginning to realize she had been more in control of the situation than I had thought, though I didn't understand why. She shook her head at me and said, Are you actually this nice? Or is there something wrong with you? And that's how I met Lina Severand. How our friendship started. How all of this started. Everything that happened afterwards took place because I jumped out of my car to help her. All of it leading to that night at Arson, the mansion where she lived with her family, where I'd been invited to a fundraiser gala told by Lena to wear something dead sexy, and so found myself in the woods at night alone, wearing a dress my mother had worn to countless parties in the 80s when she had been a horror movie star.
0: Majo. FBI Case File 4815-1623-42 Evidence entry log. Three black notebooks bound together with one length of twine. Each notebook 5 by 8.25 inches. Blue-ruled lined papers. Notebooks consisting of handwritten journal entries in black ink. Begin first journal entry. Little Wayne, I had a dream. You were in it at first. You always are, pointing out the way. I wanted to write down these dreams since you're a part of them. That's why I have this notebook now. Then I realized that I wanted to tell you more. There are things happening, events I need to record. I've been on my own, going from place to place, not talking to anyone. Not since Chicago. Holding back every word I should have spoken. Now that I'm writing, I know I'm not gonna stop, not until I see the end of what I started. I stood behind you with my hands on your shoulders and you pointed east in my dream toward the morning sun rising on Los Angeles. A black sun, occluded, giving no light, no heat, veiled by smog, the color of light pollution, sodium vapor orange. The city around me was empty, quiet. A fluttering darkness descended from the low sky, and it took the shape of two people walking toward me down the middle of the street, holding hands. A white girl with long, loose blonde hair and what looked like her twin brother. They had nearly identical faces, both of them beautiful, otherworldly, heartbreaking. The brother stopped and let go of the girl's hand. She came closer to me, and she was about to speak. With a dreamer's presage of certainty, I knew her words were about to reveal something terrible. A truth that was a horror, and I would be changed. And the world would be changed. I woke in my hotel room beyond the middle of the night and packed my things quickly into the pink Hello Kitty backpack, setting out on foot at once. It was silent and still around the Motel 6 in San Dimas, all the world here still asleep. A shadow lingered in a doorway. It could have been an echo of someone deceased that night. It could have been a manifested aftershock of intended malice or committed violence. I briefly considered turning back to expel it, but I did not. Walking then, keeping no destination in mind, only west, the opposite direction of where, in the dream, you had told me to go. I can't follow you, Little Wing. You know that. I have to find my own way forward. In some cities, I present as a gentleman to be respected and left alone about my business. In others, people see me as a menace and cross the street when I approach. In Los Angeles, I seem to pass as a homeless man, which is disconcerting. There might be something wrong with my hat. Its name is Anbenpan. I think it might be losing its luster these last days and. That's no surprise, since I've kept it a long, long time now. I can't exactly control its effect. When I interact with an individual, and Penban gives them a version of me that's something ideal, something they want to believe is true. When no one's paying attention, maybe someone glances at me when they drive by, and Penpon generalizes, drawing on the attitudes of the locality. It was dispiriting in L.A., When some folks I walked past cast me looks of pity and disgust. But if I had thought about it, passing as homeless served me just fine. Unknown, unseen, lost on purpose. This was how I lived. I didn't know it at the time, but I was nearing the end of remaining hidden. I was sick of skulking across the country, Deep down, I no longer cared about the consequences. So I traversed the city, facing myself always to the west, passing shopping centers in the suburbs where SUVs filled the parking lots, then older neighborhoods where sedate homes rested behind sprinkler-wet, new-mown lawns. A police cruiser followed me for a few blocks to make sure I wasn't stopping, then the inner city, where other homeless men tracked me as I crossed their territories. Finally, I gained the downtown, where I was one forgotten pinpoint of humanity among the many thousands. I was weary from the day's walking, from months of walking. The morning had come and gone, the afternoon. Again, it was evening. The setting sun swam through lakes of red gold, in the mirrored sides of skyscrapers. There was a courtyard amid the downtown towers. Low walls of polished granite bound a public space where small trees and quaint flowers grew in rectangular planters. A riverine flow of pedestrians was endless in both directions beneath the palm trees on the street-side promenade. I came to a stop here. Looking straight up, I could see the tops of five skyscrapers appearing to bend toward one another from a trick of perspective here at the center of these five yggdrasil towers spanning earth to sky in this place a concatenation of countless different energies would conceal any workings of my own i set my backpack down and unzipped the main compartment took out the folding table I used for cards, extended the legs to make it the right height for standing. From the left inside breast pocket of my suit, I removed a deck of true cards and unwound the thin, snakeskin strap that held them together. I dealt the standard deck out onto the table, gathered, sprang them from left hand to right, re-dealt them as tarot cards in a Crowley configuration. The simple action of moving the cards on the table, changing their nature from trick deck to tarot, would likely generate enough magical tension in the area to draw someone in. Sure enough, a tourist couple found themselves diverted from the rest of the pedestrians passing by, the wife pulling on her reluctant husband's arm. In her eyes, I saw an adventurous spirit overcoming reticence. Her appraisal of me was, surprisingly, almost entirely composed of anticipating the pleasure she would receive from having her fortune read. Her husband's eyes held mistrust and annoyance, with a far edge of fear that it was a latent racial bias he probably didn't even know he possessed. How much to read my cards? The woman asked me. Her accent was pure Nebraska Midwest. I'm not sure why, but no one wants card tricks anymore. It's something I've noticed. Lately, there's an uncertainty in people and they need to see a validating reflection of themselves more than they need the opening into wonder that a good card trick can initiate. I began my piece. On another day, I might have allowed some Creole vocabulary and inflection into my performance, but just then I thought better of it. Something about being perceived as little more than living detritus all day long had affected me. Made me angry without realizing it. You know, I studied at the fucking Sorbonne, excuse my language. I am no gutter trash. I spoke with a stage magician's mastery of possibility. The reading is free of charge. However, you may pay what you feel is right once you're sure I've given you a glimpse of the beyond. The husband rolled his eyes at me like a 13-year-old girl, yet the wife came forward to the table, already wrapped. Such was her enjoyment that I could already feel my weariness subsiding. "'Would the lady wish to ask a question of the cards?' I asked. "'Or seek to understand the past, or sweep aside the shroud of time and look into the future?' "'Oh,' she said. "'My future, please?' I pointed at her hand, then pointed at the deck of cards." She didn't understand. You may split the deck to begin, I cordially said. She reached over the flimsy, scratched plastic surface of the folding table and handled the deck hesitantly, dividing it into two sections. I tapped on the top card of both halves, making sure the woman's touch and intention had changed and settled the cards into their tarot suits and arcana. I made the deck whole again, then dealt the cards out slowly, so the woman could watch each one revealed until the Celtic cross was finished. Oh, wow, she said. These cards are beautiful. She looked from the table up to me. Where are they from? I don't recognize some of them. This is a 52-card Triumphi deck. In fact, it predates the tarot. I explained. "'What's that one?' she asked, pointing at the card in the upper right, last position of the Celtic cross, which represented the outcome. "'It's called the fountain,' I said. "'In this position, it means inspiration and creativity.' The card depicted a pastoral of forested green, an obelisk-shaped boulder stood in the center, toward the upper left, revealing a gush of white water that trickled down toward the lower right into a rippling pool, where a red fox and a black dog lapped up their fill. I continued, hearing a strangeness come into my voice as this working of magic we were a part of now took over the words I spoke. You are coming into a time of productivity, When you return home from your vacation, you will feel renewed and refreshed from the sights you've seen, so much that you'll get more things done in a day than you thought possible. The woman smiled happily, having just heard precisely what she yearned to be told. She turned to her husband and said, "'Maybe I'll finally finish that scrapbook.' I quickly explained the rest of her reading, more by rote than for any good reason, since she had already received what she'd been looking for, and I could feel my full strength return to me, my hunger and thirst abated. At the end, the man put his fingers into a money belt, which went over the waist of his cargo shorts, underneath his golf shirt, and took out a twenty. The couple left, holding hands. They would discover soon enough that... I had reversed what the man had paid me. The twenty-dollar bill was back in his money belt, by itself, while the rest of the belt's contents, now in my possession, being counted. It was enough cash to buy another hotel room, maybe for a few nights. I had his driver's license and MasterCard as well, which was unfortunate for them, but of no use to me. I tossed them into the nearest garbage can. It was time to travel. Travel. I decided to risk it, a working of more power than the card reading I had just completed. Enough of L.A., I thought. Too many people, too much noise, and I had no desire to be seen as homeless, not for another moment. There was an alley nearby behind a Chinese restaurant. The garbage bins leaked a rancid smell of old grease and decaying chicken bones. The back door into the restaurant was unsuitable for me, It was unlocked and often used, not worth the risk of someone opening it at the precise moment I was using it for something else. There, at the blind end of the alley, was another door into the back of a different building, and this one had a padlocked chain across it. I prepared myself. At the heart of me, there is brokenness. A gap. It makes me who I am. What I am. It always has. A working of real magic, real power, consists of this. Forcing, or finessing, what lies outside oneself and what lives inside to meet, to join, to be the same. I put one hand on the locked door. I bent my will inward, focusing the weariness I felt, the pain, the anger driving my emotions, controlled by reason and focus, like a spike into the emptiness at the core of myself, the infinite space. And an opening dilated inside my mind and outside in the world. I went through it. Admittedly, it was careless. I knew better. The card reading would have remained unseen, unfelt in the center of the city. Not, however, the working I had just done. I traveled. I did not know where I was. No time had passed, only distance. I was outside the back door of some kind of store closed for business. It was a small, empty parking lot bordered by the beginning of a deep green tangle of underbrush and trees. I had held in my mind two simple ideas. West, a hotel. I went around to the front of the building, which was a strip mall on the main street of some moderate-sized town. I thought I might be up in the hills west of L.A., since the strip mall had a few artsy shops in it, and the main street had a decent upward slope. The cross streets had signs reading Beach Boulevard, the main street, and Leaf Avenue, which seemed to lead downhill toward houses, Beach and Leaf, I thought, feeling a coolness in the names like shade gained in midday heat. A welcome respite after the press of energies around me in Los Angeles. On the other side of Beach Boulevard, there was a motel. Beneath the neon letters of the motel's name, the Evergreen, the No in the vacancy sign was unlit. The main office was thankfully still open at this hour. A tall and narrow-shouldered man with thinning hair combed forward between graying wisps was folded like origami into the cramped space behind the motel office front desk. His name tag said Gary Cooper. He smiled with a friendliness that caught me off guard at first. On penpon still worked, I thought with relief. Whatever the man saw me as being, it wasn't homeless. He saw my gaze linger on his name tag— Yep, he said. It's my name, all right. I said, I was hoping one of the maids was Brigitte Bardot. We do have our share of celebrities around here, Gary Cooper said. Do you need a room? For instance, there's Barbara Bellamy. She lives just up the road, in fact. Just for one night, thank you, I said. I don't know who that is. I'll need a credit card for incidentals. Barbara Bellamy was in those crazy horror movies in the 70s and 80s made by that weird German director who was murdered. I only use cash, I said. If I can put some down for a deposit. I don't watch too many movies. Not these days. I grinned. Love the classics, though. That makes sense, since you mentioned Brigitte Bardot and not, say, Julia Roberts or Jennifer Lawrence. My wife and I watch a lot of movies. He pointed at a small TV that was ensconced behind the counter. Passes the time. I didn't see you drive up, he pointed out. No car. Any luggage you need help with other than the briefcase? He nodded toward the pink Hello Kitty backpack I had unshouldered and sat down on the floor next to me. No luggage. Gary Cooper. Shrugged. Cash will be fine. You're my only guest tonight. He considered what he had just said. That sounded like a line from the movie Psycho. Yes, it did, I said. He took a sheet of paper that a printer had just produced and passed it to me over the counter. All your information there, please. The rate's at the bottom if you want to initial that. Plus 50% for the deposit, which is refundable as long as you don't smoke in the room. Total is next to the rate right there. I noticed a brochure on the countertop and took one, pocketing it. I handed over nearly all of the money I had obtained from the tourist couple in L.A., as well as the information sheet filled out. Gary Cooper looked over the sheet. Mr. Gabriel Mageau, he said, reading my name aloud. Sounds French. Louisiana, I said. It's one of the main reasons I rarely stay in hotels. I'm not capable of writing down a false name. I just can't do it. I can't even type one into a computer. If I write or type a false name into a place where my name is required, my real name appears there instead. Someday I'll tell you why. It's a good story. Gary Cooper put the keys to the room on the counter, and I took them. As I was leaving the office to walk down the front of the motel to the room, he called out to me. "'Mr. Majot?' I turned to look at him. "'Great fedora,' he said. "'The worst thing that ever happened to men is hats going out of style.' I touched a finger to the brim of on pen bon. "'Thank you, Gary Cooper.' Good night, Mr. Majot. In the room, I took the brochure out of my suit pocket. What to do in Park Heights. I set it aside without reading it. I wouldn't be in Park Heights long enough to do much of anything. That night, I had another dream. But I always do when I'm sleeping in a bed. You weren't in this one, Little Wing, But... The beautiful teenage girl and her brother, I had dreamed about them the night before, appeared once again. I was outside. It was nighttime. There were many people around, dressed in formal attire, drinking wine and champagne. A string quartet played upscale renditions of pop songs. The party was situated in the grounds of some kind of estate. There was a tent nearby, set up in case of rain, but the night was cool and clear, and the air was sharp, yet pleasant. I turned and saw a mansion presiding over the estate, an immense and ancient house with wings to either side that were later additions, and a front portico in classical Greek style that had been restored more than once throughout the years. Someone touched me on the arm. I turned. It was the girl. Her brother stood apart from her, but he was watching me as intently as she was. Where's my gift? She asked me. Her long, blonde hair was done in a half-up, half-down style, and stray strands drifted around her face. The dress she wore was old-fashioned, something from the twenties, a black and gray flapper's dress that seemed more suited to a costume party than the black tie formality that everyone else here had observed. Her brother wore an immaculate pinstripe suit with a tie the same color as his sister's dress. I don't have anything for you, Lena. I said to her. I didn't think it was strange that I knew her name. She shook her head. You know that's not true. Her brown eyes were soft, coy. Her smile was vicious. I received what she said as a threat. I looked at her brother. He was holding a gun, its muzzle pointed down at the ground. He was waiting to see what I would do next.
1: You're listening to Dark Heights by C.D. Miller, starring Dion Graham, Julia Whalen, and Neil Heligers. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Dark Heights is created and written by C.D. Miller. It is produced by Haley Wagreich and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, and editing by Amanda Rose Smith.
0: Original music by Chris Miller.